Hello friends, Rob here in the Bunker Studio. We have something special today. Uh, it's an interview with the executive editor of the American Prospect, David Dan. David and I discuss his reporting on Chris Coons's attempt to leverage his relationship with the president to name a corporate kingpin as the head of the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, and why this is exactly the kind of under-the-radar reactionary power move indicative of the Delaware way. But before we start, I have a brief message. I've mentioned it in passing a few times, but I wanted to sort of officially announce that I've decided to dedicate my life full-time to advocacy and independent journalism. This is a big change for me after 24 years of taking a corporate paycheck, but after 130-odd podcast episodes and a successful first year of The Delaware Call, I feel even more motivated to keep up this work. The numbers seem to indicate you all are digging it, and we're very glad about that. Now we need your help. If you haven't become a patron yet, please consider doing so and supporting our work. Uh, the pandemic rules are lifting and the studio is going to open back up soon. Carl and I have procured more equipment to ensure that everything we do in studio is 100% professional quality. And as far as content goes, I think even all the haters out there will admit that no one else in Delaware is doing what we're doing on a consistent basis. If you are a patron currently, thank you for all your support. Uh, please consider getting some friends and family onto our stuff. Uh, if you aren't a patron, or if you've let your patronage lapse, uh, please consider uh, signing up again. We have a back catalog filled with interviews with elected officials, both local and national journalists, academics, historians, activists. Uh, and we're doing this with two people and no money. Um, together with your patronage, we could do so much more. So uh, go to patreon.com slash the Highlands Bunker today. Sign up for a 10 or $5 a month patronage. Anything uh, will help. Uh, show some solidarity uh, and help us continue to inform, educate, entertain, and generally make the lives of some truly awful Delaware Way elites more difficult. Uh, these ghouls like Chris Coons depend on the disengaged, the unorganized, and the indifferent, uh, what Marx would call the lumpen proletariat. Let's endeavor to engage and organize. Uh, I really believe that solidarity uh, can bring change. Uh, once again, thanks for listening. Left is best. Comrades and friends, welcome to the Highlands Bunker Podcast. We're in the shadow of Rockford Tower in the belly of the Delaware Way corporate beast. Uh, and nothing will demonstrate this more clearly than our discussion today. Uh, Super producer Carl is monitoring proceedings from a secure remote location. Uh, on Sunday, May 2nd, a group of our comrades formed a picket outside Senator Chris Coons's home here in the Highlands neighborhood, uh, mere blocks from the Bunker Studio complex, uh, to demonstrate against the senator's reluctance to waive patent rights for the COVID vaccine, uh, even as the disease ravaged massive populations around the world, including in India and in Brazil. On May 5th, the Biden administration announced it would support a process to waive patent protections for the COVID-19 vaccines. But rest assured, uh, Senator Coons will continue to work towards protecting capital interests over all other concerns. Uh, our guest today, uh, David Dayan, has a new article in the American Prospect examining a specific example of this. Uh, it's titled Chris Coons Working to Install Business-Friendly Candidate for Key Patent Position. Uh, David is 
the American Prospects executive editor. His work has appeared in The Intercept, The New Republic, HuffPost, The Washington Post, The LA Times, among other places. Uh, he also has a recent book out called Monopolized, Life in the Age of Corporate Power. Uh, I am happy to welcome David Dayen to Highlands Bunker Podcast. Hi, David. Hi, how you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you for uh, for joining. I appreciate it. Before we get to your piece, um, I just wanted to ask you, have you read the new thing in the Times about Coons being Biden's uh, Senate ambassador to reactionary accommodation? Just came out. Yeah, it just came out yesterday. I yes, I, I did read it. Uh, it it I, I thought it was a, a bit limp as an article, uh, considering it didn't didn't really uh, talk about the impact of of Coons is sort of being the Biden whisperer uh, in in Congress. But uh, certainly that was as I was reporting this piece, that was certainly expressed to me by people on the Hill and outside groups is that uh, whether he's exaggerating it or not, there's a sense that Coons has the ear of the president and that he is closely connected uh, to uh, presidential decision making and that he is sort of an extension of, uh, of of the administration within the U.S. Senate. Yeah, I mean, that story, along with, you know, sort of the pressure he's he's exerting uh, in your story is predicated on this idea that, um, you know, he has the ear of the president. He's close to the president. And also, you know, he could have been considered for secretary of state. Um, I know that when I was speaking to Daniel Bessner um, in the interregnum before Biden took office, and he's a foreign policy expert, uh, he's at the University of Washington, and in, in ta- and obviously, you know, the, the gossip here, because we're just this little insular place, was like, oh, he could get Secretary of State, but I, I didn't think anybody really thought that that was realistic. But even, I guess, if it wasn't realistic, the idea that he could have um, still has some cachet, Biden did send him... East Africa on a diplomatic mission a couple months ago, I think. Um, so, and again, you know, as I said, I live down the street from Chris Coons. Everybody has everybody's ear. We keep bumping into each other. It's kind of weird. Uh, but yeah, so I, it, even if even if it isn't even if it isn't all the way true, it's true. I, I'm sure that. Yeah, I mean, it, it's good for everybody to keep up that fiction, right? I mean, uh, it, it, it was pretty clear, and we did reporting on this at the time that when Biden took office, that he was going to have Tony Blinken, who was a longtime sort of consigliere uh, to Biden on foreign policy issues, that he would be the secretary of state. I mean, I think I think that was pretty clear from the from the get go. However, it, it was good for Coons to be in that conversation because it, it buttresses this idea that he's the Biden whisperer, that that he's very close. Uh, and in the specific case of my story, he's he's telling people that, well, I, I, I guess I could have been secretary of state, but I turned that down. But in exchange for that, I'm able to make uh, uh, my influence known on certain selections of uh, administration officials. And whether that's true or not, if he's saying it and he is perceived to be who he is, then the Commerce Department and the Presidential Personnel Office has to take that into consideration. It's not like they're going to go back and double check with Biden if some secret deal was made. They, they just have to divine whether that or not that that could be true and whether or not Coons is an ally who Biden doesn't want to get mad. Uh, and, and that drives the decision making. So some of these things, it's like, 
as you say, it's not true, but it's true. It's like it doesn't have to be true in order to be effective. Correct. Yeah. As long as it sort of looks that way and people believe it, then it's true. Um, so getting to your piece, um, before we get into the nuts and bolts of it, can you explain a little bit about what the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office is? Um, because it sounds pretty mundane. You know, you, you even mentioned it, you know, it, it sounds just like a bureaucratic entity that's going to sort of manage trademarks and patents. But the, the, the head of that department is a highly placed advisor through the Department of Commerce. Uh, sort of a, an undersecretary. Uh, so can you explain sort of how that works, what they do, and, and how they would interact uh, within the executive branch? It's kind of a unique hybrid, as you say. I mean, the Patent and Trademark Office is essentially, if you have an invention, that's who you apply to in order to get that invention patented uh, or in order to get a certain brand trademarked. So you, it is a ministerial office that uh, processes those applications for patents. And there are 13,000 people that work at the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. And the director of it runs that policy. So, so at one level, it is just sort of making the machinery of government run. But at another level, as you say, it's also the Undersecretary of Commerce for Intellectual Property. And it's a key advisor to the White House on IP issues an advisor to the Commerce Department on IP issues, an advisor to the trade representative uh, as, as uh, intellectual property is a major component of international trade. So they advise the trade rep. Uh, they advise uh, the Justice Department when there are issues uh, involving litigation around intellectual property. So it really is a very critical office in terms of US policy on intellectual property. And over the last 40 years, that has trended towards stronger and stronger patents that are harder and harder to break with longer exclusivity periods, stronger protections, and uh, uh, you know more government-granted monopolies, essentially, for uh, various inventors. And, and usually that's in the space of Hollywood or the drug industry the, or, or Silicon Valley. If you look at like the three areas in which patents and trademarks are most commonly used, those would be it. Yeah. And and Coons has a history um, sort of with this issue. I, 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 I tell people sometimes the way I think of it is it's sort of like it was indoctrinated into him at a young age, his his. His mother, his stepfather, married one of the the Dupont spinoffs that created uh, W. L. Gore, Robert Gore. So that was his stepfather, and and so he was once he you know kind of was a, was a went was a schoolboy and and kind of went to the nicer schools here and and went to Yale Divinity School and everything. Uh, I, I'm sure that the the fact that his stepfather was uh, you know was an inventor and was a, an engineer um, you know sort of meant something to him. But I know I was in a, a committee hearing about two years ago with Kerry Harris and a couple of other activists. And, and, and he was, he was um, you know, standing up for intellectual property rights, patent trolls, really. Um, so he has a history of this. Maybe you can talk about um, some, of the, some of the work he's done uh, historically on this issue. He absolutely has a history. And it's not just that his stepfather founded the W.L. Gore Company, which is most famous for Gore-Tex. Uh, that, that's, that's the fabric that is used in all kinds of jackets and, and ski wear and things like that. 
uh, he was the in-house counsel of the W.L. Gore company for eight years. Um, and interestingly, while we know of that company because of Gore-Tex, they have about 3,400 different inventions, uh, about half of them for medical use in, in, in medical devices and fabrics and, and gowns and things like that. So they have a tremendous amount of intellectual property that they need to protect and defend at all times. And he was literally the lawyer, the in-house counsel, whose job it was to do that. Uh, he, he gave a speech to the Intellectual Property Owners Association last year, where he talked uh, very candidly about his work at the W.L. Gore Company. He said, you know, half of the attorneys in our legal department were patent lawyers, and uh, patent lawyers are some of my best friends. And uh, he's carried that through in his policy uh, ambitions within the U.S. Senate. For a, for a long time, he was the chair of the subcommittee on intellectual property in the Senate Judiciary Committee. Now he's just on the committee. Pat Leahy is the chair of that subcommittee, but he, he is part of that subcommittee now. Um, and his over the years, he has partnered with Republicans and with other like-minded Democrats uh, in favor of stronger patent protections uh, down the line over and over and over again, giving more exclusivity right holders to, uh, uh, to, to you know, use any kind of, of public policy possible to get uh, patents more entrenched in society. And we should talk about the fact that uh, what does that mean to 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 entrench patents? Like, why is that? Why is that yeah, good or bad? Right. That that was kind of my next question. I, I think there's a there's a there's a thing in people's minds that on one hand, you know, we I the idea of a patent troll and and, a, and, a, and an organization that just buys the rights to it to use it as an investment vehicle, basically, uh, and is not innovative at all, and it 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 it, it lends itself towards monopolies. Um, but there's also, you know, the inventor who's going to, you know, make a better mousetrap or whatever. And, and so there's this split. Um, but, yeah, can you talk about how this the impact of of these kind of things sort of feed into the idea of monopoly, um, the the consolidation of corporate and cap, corporate capital, things like that? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, yeah, there are almost two kind of warring camps within Washington around patents, uh, as you say. Uh, an inventor comes up with something that's important, that uh, is a new innovation. We want to protect it and, and make sure that that inventor is uh, properly uh, compensated for that work and that it's not just ripped off uh, by uh, uh, other companies, et cetera. Um, so there's, there's sort of an argument for patent quality that, yes, we should give out patents, but we should, uh, we should target that and restrict that to those that are true innovations that uh, really advance things at some level. And then the other side of it is sort of patent quantity. And that's kind of where Coons comes in, uh, uh, basically arguing at every step for more and more patents. And the US Patent and Trademark Office, of course, is funded through patent award fees, which means the more patents there are, the more money that the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office gets. And this often drives their uh, interest in more and more patents. And uh, you can see how this could be weaponized. Um, we see this very commonly in the drug industry, 
where you have uh, an exclusivity period that the patent gives to a drug company for a particular medication. And it's usually about 20 years. And at that time, they're the only company selling that brand name drug. After the 20 year exclusivity period is up, generic uh, distributors can then take the formula and make a lower cost generic version. But what the uh, drug companies do is they try to extend that patents. They do a thing called patent evergreening, where they patent different tiny changes in the drug so they can extend that 20 year period out and out. They do things like pay for delay deals where they literally pay. I mean, someone called it a bribe. They pay off generic companies who want to develop a generic version of a drug in order for them to not come into the market so they can keep their patent. Um, uh, you mentioned uh, patent trolls that buy intellectual property, buy companies that are entirely designed to just sit on unused patents to cash in and to sue other companies over copyright infringement and patent infringement for their products. Uh, the fact that, and I tell this in the story, Theranos, the, the, the failed uh, diagnostic company, was still getting patents years after it was shown that their, their diagnostic machine did not work. Uh, and, was, and, and they were bought by uh, these, the, the IP was bought out by a private equity company called Fortress Investment Group. And they were suing diagnostic companies that were making COVID tests, saying that they were do, in, engaging in patent infringement of Theranos's patents, even though Theranos didn't even have a company and didn't even have anything that worked for the lifespan of its, of its time uh, in the business world. So uh, you can see how patents get weaponized. Uh, and that comes, that comes along the more patents that there are on the more trivial items that there are, the more that uh, it, it ends up happening. So uh, uh, that's the debate really uh, between uh, the patent quality guys who say you, you have to guard against these negative consequences, potential consequences of patents, and the patent quantity guys that really say that this is the only way to stimulate innovation in the United States is to give an exclusive patent to anything and everything. And we need as many patents as possible. And that's the way that we're going to remain competitive in the United States. Yeah. And that comes down to um, sort of trying to handpick a candidate who falls in one of these camps uh, or, or sort of has an idea. And and so can you uh, talk a little bit about one sort of the, the, the candidates, um, their differences, the ones that Coons is 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 trying to uh, sort of lobby for, uh, and also talk about some of the things he's done um, during that. Just giving giving particular individuals rankings and things like that. Yeah, let's start there. So um, he started in February. There was this letter that wasn't public, but we we tracked it down. He wrote this letter with Maisie Hirono, who's a senator from Hawaii, who's often his partner on the Democratic side on these issues. And uh, it was called uh, to me the four pillars letter because he listed these four pillars for what he wanted to see out of the next director of the Patent and Trademark Office. This, this letter was addressed to Biden and Kamala Harris directly. And uh, he, he, among those pillars was something that was really kind of staggering. He, uh, the, the line goes, 
a history of criticizing or weakening American intellectual property rights will undermine his or her, the next USPTO director's, ability to advocate for strong protections and enforcement mechanisms with our trade partners. In other words, if you have ever criticized the U.S. intellectual property system, you shouldn't be able to become the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office director. That is a really extreme viewpoint uh, to, to say that anyone who has criticized any decision that, that, that America has made on intellectual property is disqualified. Um, so that really sets the stage. Uh, there's, there's another part of that, that letter that says that the next director needs to have real world experience litigating intellectual property, which biases the, the selection in favor of a patent lawyer, which is commonly who ends up running this kind of office. Uh, so, so that sort of set the stage. And what I've been told then is that Coons followed that up with uh, what was called the red, yellow, green letter. And this letter literally listed a series of candidates for this position and marked them either red as in, no, I don't want those, that person to be the next director, yellow as in, I'm concerned about that person, or green as in, I strongly support this, this person for, for the position. And then what I heard additionally is that Coons has been telling people, uh, whether in the Commerce Department or in the personnel office or just people on Capitol Hill, that he was given the authority to name the next USPTO director in exchange for staying in the Senate and not taking a job in the administration. So put all of those things together, right? I mean, he, he, he lays out this letter that says, the next PTO director has to do, has to uh, exhibit this, 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 and this quality. He then says, these people I support and these people I don't. And then he goes so far as to say, uh, this is my choice to make. So uh, th this is a very aggressive series of tactics in order to get his preferred candidate uh, at, at USPTO. And who is that preferred candidate? Well, there are a few names that have been going around and they're everything you would expect. So one guy is named Ellison Turner. He's a corporate lawyer. Uh, Kirkland and Ellis was his uh, law firm. It's a very big corporate defense law firm. He's represented a lot of pharmaceutical companies who've been trying to prevent generic competition. He, he represented uh, Gilead Sciences, which is one of the more infamous pharma companies because they make a drug called Sovaldi that was priced at $84,000 for a 12-week course. Uh, and uh, it's seen as a, an, an object lesson in the failures of the, the patent system in drug uh, policy. Um, and he also represented a, a patent holding firm that was a, really a patent troll. He, 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 he was the general counsel at this company. Trump's USPTO director held the exact same job uh, before becoming PTO director. Um, so Ellison Turner is one of the guys on this list. Uh, there's another candidate named Janie Lau, who was also the general counsel for a separate patent trolling company named Interdigital. Uh, most of their revenue comes from patents. And Kevin Rhodes is the executive or past president, I should say, of the Intellectual Property Owners Association, which is a trade group 
for that advocates for for strong patent protection. So so you have uh, uh, either two patent troll lawyers or the head of the, the 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 organization that literally advocates for stronger patent protections. Uh, and those are his top three choices. Yeah, there's a huge cognitive dissonance, uh, and there, there there is a lot of places, but but that that somehow you know this this Biden Coons coalition from Delaware is was a was a great relief from the Trump era, um, and really from from the perspective of the bureaucracy or managing government, as you explained, there's really no difference. Uh, if if we're looking at um, issues like IP, like patent and trademark, I mean, the, these are the, the the candidates that that Chris Coons is scoring highly and handpicking. If if we're to believe that he is he has the authority to do that, are the same folks that either that that were sort of in the same pool of candidates as Trump would select, and doing the same kind of work, you know, protecting. And maybe you could talk about this, too. Um, well, yeah, I mean, Kuhn rather publicly supported the work that Trump's USPTO director was doing. He would frequently write uh, uh, and, 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 and co-sponsor legislation with Tom Tillis, who uh, was the Republican ranking member of that IP subcommittee, uh, the chair last year and now is the ranking member. Um, so this, uh, there is a continuity there, as you say, there's, there's a complete continuity between, uh, Coons's, uh, uh, stance on IP issues before Trump and after Trump and, and who he is pushing is, is really not very different. Uh, it's certainly not a transformation of the role relative to where Trump and, and to be fair, even, uh, where previous uh, uh, administrations have been on IP over the last 40 years. Um, there's, there's a lot of continuity there. And, and there is now, I mean, in part because of the issue you were talking about at the beginning, the, the, the waiver for IP on the vaccines uh, for COVID, uh, and, and because of some other issues, there's been a newfound kind of renaissance in scholarship and activism uh, against these kinds of strong patent protections. And there's now more of a spotlight on this issue. Usually the, this issue gets absolutely no coverage whatsoever, uh, but there's now more of a spotlight on it. And it's a little more dangerous for Coons to be towing the same party line that he's been towing for his entire lifespan in Congress uh, now that there is pushback. I mean, Coons was really the only prominent Democrat that was against the IP waiver on COVID vaccines, and he lost that fight. And uh, it, it, it's unclear how that's going to cut with respect to this issue of the Patent and Trademark Office director, uh, which is very important because, you know, all that Biden said is that he supports negotiating a waiver. We don't know what that some end, end total of the negotiation will be. And whoever is patent and trademark office director is going to have a say in what that language looks like. It's going to be, you know, this will be the key advisor in some ways on that process. So uh, who gets this position really matters. And uh, it, it's unclear how that will cut the fact that that Biden was willing to 
uh, go forward on the vaccine waiver, does that mean that there's now this revolution in thinking in, in within the Biden administration about IP? Or does it mean that it's a big picture issue, but behind the scenes, uh, Coons will be able to get the, the PTO director that he wants? Uh, that's the question, and it remains to be seen. But I think playing these things out in public, which is not normally done, is uh, going to maybe change the dynamic. Yeah, I hope so. Um, you know, we, we talked a little bit about the, the New York Times piece or, or the idea that um, Coons is sort of the chief negotiator for Biden on the infrastructure deal and how it's going to go. Um, and so this this idea that he's a deal maker and a bipartisan deal maker, uh, you know, sort of clouds the fact that really what he is is just an accomplice uh, to, you know, to something like this, where, you know, really he, he still has control depending on who is going to be placed in this position um, to decide what's going to happen with that COVID vaccine waiver. And and so it has to stay on, it has to stay in the front of people's minds. Yeah, that's an important thing for people to understand is that we're at the beginning of that process, not the end of it. The, the final decisions have not been made. And the next PTO director will be helping to make those final decisions. And so who who gets that slot? It doesn't doesn't just matter for the vaccine IP, right? I mean, it matters. Uh, there are a host of ways that the Biden administration can lower drug prices on their own authority if they and it it all goes through the patent system. There are ways that uh, they can uh, use existing law to seize patents from companies that are delivering prescription drugs at absolutely exorbitant prices and redistribute those patents to companies that promise to uh, distribute them in a more equitable and affordable way. Um, uh, the, the, the PTO director is gonna have a lot of say over that, for example. And so there are a whole host of ways in which this position matters beyond just the high profile issue of COVID vaccines, which is obviously very important. Yeah, and since you brought it up, I think this is a good time to sort of expand the conversation because the, the prospect and, and, and you yourself and your work, even before Biden was inaugurated, uh, was doing a lot of work about what could the executive branch do uh, to accomplish some some big goals if they, you know, was there a way um, to accomplish some of these things, even considering what the Congress is going to be or, or, or whatever. Uh, could you talk a little bit about those and tracking those, um, how that idea came about, I think, and 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 what you've seen so far? I mean, obviously, in my opinion, you know, I've I've read the stuff and, and I know a lot of it has to do with being more aggressive on the executive end of it. And what we just talked about for a half hour was being um, is sort of capitulating on the executive end of it. Uh, but at, go ahead and, and talk about that a little bit and, and sort of weave it into this uh, into this story, too. Yeah. Absolutely. Thanks. Um, so way back in September of 2019, actually, we ran a whole series called the Day One Agenda, which was entirely about all of the things the next president can do, next Democratic president can do on their own authority without needing Mitch McConnell's go ahead from Congress, from the Senate. And uh, it anticipated this moment, really, right, where you'd have a Senate that was very evenly divided, whether Democrats held it or Republicans held it, and a president that was going to struggle to meet a lot of these legislative goals that they had set 
and uh, what could be done in that moment of gridlock. And it turns out a lot can be done. Uh, we went through the archives and, and, and looked at existing laws that Congress had already passed and how they could be used to make real progress. And that included things like canceling student debt, things like uh, using the procurement power to uh, ensure that all federal contractors uh, would stay neutral in any union bargaining uh, 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 situations with their own staffs. Uh, it, it looked at things like what uh, banking regulators can do to break up the big banks. It looked at things uh, uh, along a host of things, environment, and immigration, and, and, and a whole bunch of different subjects. And we, we, we did about 40 articles on this, about half of them before uh, the presidential election and about half of them after, as we saw things come into view, uh, uh, saying specifically that, that President-elect Biden could, could, could do this stuff. And uh, we distilled that out into 77 discrete actions that, the, 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 that Biden could take on his own authority. And uh, we built this thing called the Executive Action Tracker. And it's easy to get to. You just go to prospect.org slash EAT, uh, Executive Action Tracker, right? So prospect.org slash EAT, uh, you, you, you find out what, what the next president can do and, and, or what Biden can do. And uh, of those 77 items, uh, I, I'm going to have to actually look and see the exact numbers here. But uh, he has taken action, uh, definitely done seven of the 77. He's got partial credit for about five. Uh, and then one was no longer applicable because there was a court ruling that made it moot. So uh, th that, that's not a huge number, right? Um, uh, seven out of 77 and, and five for partial credit. Uh, there's a lot more room to run here. There's a lot more that Biden could do uh, if he really wants to be a successful president and he doesn't want his presidency hinging on Joe Manchin or Mitch McConnell. Uh, there are options. There are uh, things that can be done. And uh, uh, it, it, we built this really as a resource so that people would know that the excuses that would inevitably be made for why uh, things were in a, a position of stasis uh, were not applicable. I mean, there are, there are options here. And uh, so now we're seeing predictably uh, uh, people uh, you know, affiliated with the Democratic Party saying, well, the problem is we don't have enough members of the Senate and we, we, we don't have, we, don't have uh, you know, we, we haven't gotten rid of the filibuster, so blame Joe Manchin or whatever. But the truth is that progress can be made uh, and all Biden has to do is sign his name to things. Yeah, I really uh, would implore people to go take a look at this at this work, because I think people have an idea of executive action or signing executive orders. And, you know, it has a bad connotation uh, because they haven't been used really in a in a, uh, in, a, in, a, in a in a really I wouldn't say legitimate, but a, uh, but in a way that's actually going to uh, give us some progress and, and it, solve a problem, like address an issue, other than it just being some sort of political issue. Um, but I, I think people should read these because these are not radical. This is just sort of management, putting people in charge that are going to, you know, manage these executive departments in a particular way, uh, environment, uh, immigration. You know, these are not radical um, 
these are these a lot of these are not radical things. And importantly, Robert, this is all stuff that Congress has designated that the president can do. This is based on existing law. If you look at the Constitution, you look at the duties of the president, it is to take care that the laws are faithfully executed. Congress writes the laws and the president implements the laws. And all of the things that we're talking about when we're talking about executive action are things where the president can implement those laws. Uh, the, 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 the cancellation of student debt is based on the Higher Education Act of 1963, which gives that authority to the Department of Education. Uh, making uh, uh, cannabis legal effectively uh, through descheduling it off the list of controlled substances is something that the uh, executive branch has the authority to do, and it was designated in the Controlled Substances Act. Uh, th these are not sort of extra constitutional power grabs. These are literally the definition of what a president is intended to have as his or her function. So uh, I, I get a little I get a little frustrated when people talk about this as 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 just sort of a, an, uh, a sidelight of 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 what a president's duties are, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a distraction from the real work of, I guess, pressuring Congress to, to pass their agenda. No, this is the job. The, the, this is the job. The job is to execute the laws. Here are a bunch of laws. Go execute them. Yeah, that's why I think the story in the New York Times is also so nefarious. It's because it's it's basically saying, look, we're we can't do it without these deals because Cinnamon Mansion won't do it. I think he comes out and says that about the infrastructure deal uh, because he was getting sort of, I guess, pushback. Coons was, and and he he's got to play you know play act. He's got to say, well, maybe we can court uh, Susan Collins, or maybe we can do the on the executive branch. There's powers that could just be utilized, and and they could deal with they could deal with the, the congressional uh, packages. Uh, you know, on a different on a different timeline, even. Well, look, I mean, obviously, uh, uh, if you want to appropriate a trillion dollars to fix roads and bridges and 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 and, and do all sorts of other uh, things in, involving infrastructure, you, you need to pass a law. I'm not, I'm not saying that laws are obsolete; that we have all the laws that we need passed uh, through the end of time. What I'm saying is, is that in the meantime, while you're trying to get those deals made, there is progress to be had in the existing suite of laws that have been passed. And uh, it's a missed opportunity to not make tangible progress for the American people on popular issues. We actually polled the day one agenda and it polled pretty well all of these discrete issues from lowering prescription drug prices to canceling student debt and what have you. They poll well. Uh, you, you know, this makes policy sense, but it also makes some political sense to give that impression of forward momentum, to uh, uh, give, give this notion that uh, the president cares about these various issues and is working to fix them in any way he can and not letting Congress be an obstacle. I mean, you know, I don't know how anyone could have lived through the four years of Trump and not thought executive action was a powerful tool to display your preferences as a president. I mean, <laughs> Donald yes, Trump passed barely anything. <laughs> and, and yet he put his stamp on the federal government in a number of different ways and showed to his constituency 
that he was acting on the issues that he talked about in the campaign. So uh, uh, I, I just feel like there are a lot of missed opportunities here. No, and, and I'm, I think about that, too, because it's, uh, you know, there's this doom and gloom of the midterm elections uh, because everybody knows what happened to Obama. And just historically, this is what happens in midterm elections. And it's sort of like, yeah, if we don't make these deals in the Congress, you know, we'll really get swamped out. Well, you have this whole opportunity of this whole litany of things that, as you say, you can sort of you can indicate to people that you are trying to address, you know, A, B and C concern. Uh, you do want to take a positive sort of approach to this. I won't even say progressive, just a positive approach to to some of these issues. Uh, and you and you just slow play it uh, and, and sort of deflect it uh, towards just sort of your your congressional package. And I think it's. um. Yeah, I'm very I'm as frustrated as you are by that. And on top of which, and we talk about this uh, at the state level, we've talked about cannabis legalization. We've talked about fifteen dollar minimum wage at the state level, all extremely popular ideas. The idea that there's the idea that there's some sort of division or discontent is sort of manufactured. Well, it's very interesting that Delaware is moving forward on a fifteen dollar an hour minimum wage when Senators Coons and Carper voted against it in in the American Rescue Plan. Uh, Biden, to his credit, has uh, one of the probably the number one thing that he has done uh, through executive action is mandate a $15 an hour minimum wage for all federal contractors. And that will raise wages for about 390,000 workers, uh, which is, you know, all in a day's work. That's that's not that's not too bad. and I, I certainly uh, praised that when that came out and thought that more could be done with the procurement power. The U.S. government is one of the largest purchasers of goods and services, and it can set standards for those services, either, uh, uh, either through the goods that it buys, you know, only purchasing clean energy, for example, or through the services that it contracts uh, with private companies. Uh, not just uh, ensuring that wages are, uh, are, are at a certain level, but also uh, things like banning uh, worker arbitration agreements as a condition of employment for all federal contract workers. It could uh, allow uh, federal agencies to reject uh, contractors who have labor law violations. It could require uh, contractors, uh, when when a when a contractor is replaced, it could re- require that new contractor to keep on the previous contractor's workers who are familiar with the the various services being provided. Uh, there are all sorts of things that you can do for procurement policy, and Biden picked one that was very important. Uh, he also did a sort of a buy clean program to buy clean energy and zero emissions vehicles. Um, uh, he directed agencies to do that, but there's a lot more that could be done around, uh, uh, federal procurement. And that's just a perfect example. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm getting more and more, um, sort of pessimistic by the day. I, I don't know why I think because, um, you know, we did get the, we got the, the rescue plan kind of out of the box and people were happy about that. Um. Biden also came out and did make a statement, uh, you know, sort of uh, pro-labor, we'll say, um, during the during the Bessemer uh, during the the, the Bessemer campaign uh, at Amazon. Um, But he just he always seems to stop short 
uh, of something that really people can grab onto and say, okay, we're 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 we're, we're being positive. We're 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 taking a positive approach uh, rather than just a real negative defensive approach. Well, we have a piece that uh, actually is out today. I think it's on the website by now. Uh, I'll I'll check in a second, but. Uh, about uh, and actually a, a, a fairly positive thing that um, uh, the U.S. Trade Representative's Office did on the U.S. MCA, the, the trade agreement with Mexico and Canada. Uh, there were certain labor rights built into that agreement that allows uh, the, the, the Trade Representative's Office to uh, uh, file complaints over Mexican labor practices. And if necessary, you know, get a, get a ruling to get those shut down. Uh, and it's doing so uh, with respect to a GM plant in Mexico that was uh, that hired a sham union, what is called a company union uh, in Mexico. This is a pretty common tactic uh, where the workers don't even see the contract until it's done. It's 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 a collusion basically between the union and uh, and, and the corporation. And uh, uh, U.S. to their credit, they they filed. This is the first time ever that the trade rep has initiated a complaint against a foreign factory uh, in 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 a trade dispute. So uh, uh, there have been fits and starts of good things. That just happened to be a top of mind because we wrote about it literally today. Um, but uh, I, I think by and large, uh, there's been. You know, nothing's ever going to be all good or all bad. I guess uh, there, there's, there are always going to be uh, 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 differences of opinion uh, and 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 things that can be uh, done better. The problem I have is that after the passage of the American Rescue Plan, it seems like a lot of left-leaning pundits were ready to put Joe Biden on Mount Rushmore because he passed emergency legislation. Uh, at a time when uh, people really needed a lot of help and, and the vaccines needed to get out. Uh, and they were ready to anoint him like this, this uh, you know, one of the, the most progressive presidents of anyone's lifetime, uh, when he passed nothing that was permanent. I mean, uh, everything in the American Rescue Plan is a temporary situation, including the expansion of the t child tax credit, which really would be transformative if it were permanent, but which uh, has, has not yet uh, been carried through beyond 2021. So uh, I, I think you got to look at these things a little more realistically, especially if you're going to, which has been done in some discrete circumstances, push Biden more to the left and, and, and push him into positions that he might not take initially that would be uh, positive for, for, for various groups and people. Um, uh, I, I think you have to be a little more skeptical rather than jumping on the first thing that he does and say that, that this is this is a progressive maven. This is this is a, an incredible situation. Yeah. And it's and, and if you if you don't, then it gets turned around and these temporary programs. I, I mean, I think that there's, you know, a lot of work has been done to indicate how, you know, the these the support emergency support and making the vaccine available to everybody worked out great. Uh, or, or as well as it could have, um, you know, the, the payments to people worked, the, the supplemental on the unemployment worked um, and it helped people at a really difficult time. But now the stories you get are, well, the supplemental unemployment's keeping, you know, we can't hire enough people. Or, no, we have to continue to say that, um, you know, these temporary measures that were emergency measures actually had a tangible impact 
in people's lives. Um, so let's start to do more of them. You know, not you know, not just rest on our laurels and say, well, we did that. That was nice, and sort of, and and um, you know, and 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 let it and let it ride. You, you know, FDR. He's not FDR. He's not going to be FDR probably. But but we got to keep. You know, that that's that's really irrelevant to our our message. But those comparisons were made. Those comparisons were made early on, and I, you know, I mean, I think if if you were looking at one thing that Biden needed to do on the way in, it was clean up this vaccination program and really ramp it up. And for the first hundred days or so, he did that. Now there's been a drop off, but that's because we've kind of reached a saturation point at which uh, everyone who hasn't received a vaccine is hesitant to get it. Um, uh, so, but they've done a good job on that. And if you, if you were going to uh, uh, grade him on just that one thing, uh, I think you'd have to give him a pretty positive marks uh, given how uh, case counts and hospitalizations are all falling precipitously and uh, something like 50% of the population has been vaccinated at this point. Uh, these are good numbers. These are good things and, 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 and deaths are falling as well. Um, but there's, yeah, there's, there's more to the presidency than one, you know, it's not a job where you have one task to complete. That's just not the job. Uh, and we got to look at, at making progress on all these fronts and using the pandemic as a template for uh, fixing all of the cracks in the system that the pandemic exposed. Right. I mean, we saw all these fault lines economically in terms of the public health system, in terms of uh, unemployment, as you mentioned, in terms of cash assistance. Uh, and we need to act on that and say, these, this worked in a moment of crisis, and it and and actually we had for many populations a moment of crisis before there ever was a pandemic. Right, right? That, so, that's right. Uh, so so we need we need to learn from this and move things forward, and and uh, uh, so we need to keep that pressure on. Well, folks, uh, the article is titled "Chris Coons Working to Install Business Friendly Candidate for Key Patent Position." Uh, but all of the work at prospect.org is great. You can follow all of these in great detail. Uh, as I said, the tracker, the, the executive tracker is awesome because it gives you sort of an idea of, of the things that um, you can, the buttons you can press and the, and the, the things that are available to, to you know, get on the front foot on a lot of these issues. Um, so definitely check all of that out at the American Prospect, prospect.org. Um, David Dayan, thank you so much for taking the time. Well, thanks for having me. Very, very much appreciated. Our stuff can be found on patreon.com slash the Highlands Bunker. We're at Highlands Bunker on Twitter. And while Chris Coons is the worst, left is best. <laughs> <laughs>